You're listening to Nick Luck Daily. This edition is brought to you by Fitzdares, by the Racehorse Owners Association, and by Thoroughbred Racing Commentaries Global Rankings. Good morning, thanks for listening. It is Thursday, the 30th of December, a slightly brighter start to proceedings, slightly less wild and woolly here in TW11 today. Reflections on yesterday's action from Leopardstown and Newbury later on in the programme. Also be catching up with Indian breeder Tegbir Bra to assess the state of the industry there and their latest response to the latest variant of the global pandemic, whilst Francis Graffar, soon to take over at His Highness the Aga Khan stables in France, pays tribute to his mentor, Alain Droy Dupre, who pulled the curtain down on a glorious training career yesterday in the lowly surrounds of Pornichet. Sadly, the horse was just uh, unable to win. But first of all, we're going to focus on the grassroots of the sport in Ireland, on point-to-pointing in particular, because before Christmas, there was a very real threat that point-to-pointing would, at least temporarily, cease to exist because an insurance deal for the hunts who run the point-to-points voluntarily was not on the table. In a moment, you'll be hearing from uh, David Lawler, who's the chairman of the Irish Masters of Foxhounds Association, and also Richard Pugh, who runs the Irish Point to Pointing website. But first of all, uh, Jane Mangan is with me today. Jane, you are steeped in Point to Pointing, and you are in a unique position to tell us exactly why, tell our international listenership exactly why this matters so much to to Irish and indeed to, to British racing. Well, point of pointing is where it all began, and that's not a reason to make it important in the 21st century, but it does show you how important it has been to the development of national hunt racing in particular in this country. A lot of young horses come through this as a, as a school, if you will. And when I was growing up, my dad, Dino Sullivan, Liam Burke, around this kind of cork water part of the country, did very well with, you know, relatively inexpensive horses and selling them on and they made a living from that in the last 10 years or so it has become a much more professional sport there's a little bit like with Willie Mullins Henry de Bromhead Gordon Elliott there's been a centralization of a lot of these big uh, number of horses so you have a big branch down in Wexford you have a lot of trainers who are synonymous with bringing horses through like Pat Doyle who had an ergamine and so many more so these horses they showcase their talents. Indra Mahan today, where there's 73 four-year-old geldings entered for the second race. That, that is likely to divide two or three ways. Um, and those horses then sell on to a Willie Mullins or Gordon Elliott or whoever can afford them. Literally, they can go to Jimmy Mangan if he, is, if he is a client willing to pay for them. But ultimately, it kind of is the stage where these horses can showcase their talents before they go on to become a Shishkin or a Brave Man's Game or a Fernie Hollow. Um, the main reason why it's important is a lot of people depend on point to point on this branch of the industry to make a living. They, they put out a lot of money buying these horses. It's a big outlay. It's a big risk. But when it pays off, it can be very rewarding. And to have... Uh, fewer number of meetings or fewer number of fixtures for which to showcase a horse Uh, I know it makes the races much more competitive but it also narrows the gap for you to get uh, an opportunity to run your horse so um, 
point of pointing is the fiber. It's always referred to as the grassroots of the sport, but it is the fiber of our sport. Horses aside, a lot of jockeys come through here. No better example than Davy Russell, who learned his trade from point to pointing. There are countless examples of that. There are countless examples of equine talent as well. And the fact that it was under threat and still remains under some kind of threat was a huge worry in this part of the country. Well, as chairman of the Irish Masters of Foxhounds Association, David Lawler has been trying to broker this crucial insurance deal, which would ensure the continuation of Irish point appointing. David, how worried were you just a week or two ago? Well, we were all very worried about it because we had a huge problem trying to acquire hunt insurance. And hunt insurance traditionally in this country always included point-to-point insurance. So, therefore, no hunt insurance no point-to-point insurance, so then no point-to-point. Now, we, I suppose we were lucky in one way that a certain uh, section of the country was covered, the Munster region in particular, was covered by a, a kind of a blanket policy for all point-to-points in that area. Not so in the rest of the country. Uh, we did try to put it in place some weeks ago, but it just didn't, didn't work at the last minute. We thought we were there, but we weren't there. So just recently, just before Christmas, we managed to put our, our hunt insurance package together thanks to a lot of hard work on, 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 on behalf of a lot of, pe- of quite a few people. So going forward now from, you know, as long as it takes to set up, I'd say mid, optimistically mid-January, we will be back to where we were over the last number of years and have the point of points included in the hunt insurance. Does, does that mean there's going to be a a natural hiatus then in Irish point-to-pointing until the insurance is sorted out? Are we likely to lose several fixtures between between now and the time that insurance is in place? We, there will be a couple of postponements. Not that many, I, I, I think two or three or four at the most. Uh, I'd have to look at the, the point-to-point calendar now to see exactly who's covered and who's not. The ones in the Munster region, as I say, are okay. That's, that's down the south of the country. So there will be a few point of points affected, all right, but you know, we're kind of, you know, we've had postponements before due to weather and this, that, and the other. It's not the end of the world. Once we, once we're, once we're confident that we will get going again properly in the not too distant future, then the future looks bright for point of points. Uh, and I suppose the obvious question is. If there's been an issue before with insurance companies or, or underwriters uh, being anxious about insuring hunts or, or point-to-points that are under the hunts auspices, how can Irish point-to-pointing be confident that that instability won't occur again? The new system, I don't want to go into too much detail, but the new system will be will be slightly different to the old system in that we'll, it will be kind of fund-based, will be we'll be funding, in the beginning anyway, we'll be funding any of the smaller claims ourselves out of a fund that we're putting together at the moment. It'll be, uh, I I can't just think of the correct name for it at the moment, but it'll be be fund-based and that we cover cover a lot of the risk ourselves. We're very very optimistic. Um, We we will get there. Um, Just a little bit of paperwork to be done in the meantime. I think we can look forward to a, a, a very good point-to-point season ahead. Okay, so it sounds as though we might nearly be there. Richard Pugh runs point-to-point.ie, p2p.ie, which is the resource for, for Irish point-to-pointing and is a pivotal figure 
in in the sport in Ireland, which is just so crucial to producing so many top class horses. Uh, Richard, uh, listening to to David Lawler there, uh, are, are you still concerned? Are you feeling better about about life, about point to pointing in Ireland? Uh, thanks, Nick. Yeah, look, you'd have to be feeling a lot better when you hear David and, and the many people around him who've done wonderful work over the last couple of months to try and bring something together that he's describing, I think, as a National Hunt Steeplechase point-to-point and field sports insurance programme. So anything that incorporates point-to-pointing is good for us. Um, I, I'd be hopeful that that absolutely does cover point-to-pointing. We're very fortunate insofar as January buys us a little bit of time. We only had 12 fixtures scheduled for January. We're going to run 10. So this doesn't become an issue for us until February. But I think, as we all know, weeks weeks go pretty quickly in January because it doesn't really start as a month until the middle of it. Um, what I did take from what David said there is that it's a fund-based um, solution, if you like, whereas I understand that there was one underwriter. Um, my cautiousness, I suppose, I, I've listened to Henry de Bromhead all week saying that um, he, he likes to expect the worst and hope for the best. So where I... I would, hoping for the best is that this is, as David describes, the solution where I would be cautious is when this package is put together and finalised, then the IHRB, HRI presumably, just have to get comfortable with it. Point of pointing is intimately connected to horse racing. That's good for us. We have a lot of integrity advantages to that, which allows people to pay handsomely for horses that go on to run well. So once uh, the authorities get comfortable with this particular solution, then we're good to go. But those, those things, in my experience, tend to take time. It's taken months to get to this stage for hunting and I hope we don't lose too much time into February when this becomes a problem 1st of February is really where this could become a problem that's where we need to be right for yeah because if you're if you're out of action if there are significant point to points out of action in a huge portion of the country for say six eight weeks that's going to become at a huge financial cost particularly off the back of the covid postponements and the weather postponements the previous year Correct. COVID brought us down to 22 meetings last year. And just to put perspective on this, there were 78 meetings scheduled for the spring, which starts today. I'm on the way to Drumhound as I speak to you. Uh, So 78 meetings scheduled from now until the end of May. If uh, insurance were not to be resolved, we're fortunate that the renewal date and the Cork-Waterford policy, the Munster policy, as David referred to, will provide us with 28 fixtures. There's five or six others that have a, a, a kind renewal date for us, if you like. And there are 14 fixtures scheduled in Northern Ireland, which, of course, being part of the UK, can access underwriters that the south of Ireland cannot. So that gets us to about 50 plus meetings culling 25% of the season should no solution uh, come to pass. So it would contract the season notably. That contracts the sales of horses. That contracts the spend into the store market and onto the fall market. And on the back of what you described last year, yeah, that's where we see the real problem. Dividing does help us. We can facilitate horses on a day, but it's not the solution. Richard, there'll be people listening thinking, come on, this is anachronistic, outdated. Irish point-to-pointing is the bedrock, the financial bedrock of the Irish national hunt game. It's so intrinsically entwined with so many huge financial concerns and conglomerates how can it still be run um you know in in a voluntary sense by hunts why aren't hri just hiring out all the land and running them themselves yeah look the first part of it um i see in today's racing post peter scargill refers to the game changes of 2021 the events with long-term significance and i'm delighted to see point of pointings insurance challenges in there that's that's where we fit in the overall racing world but the reality is we run 100 fixtures and they are voluntarily run um the cost of adding 100 fixtures to an existing 340 50 odd fixtures in Ireland you know the funding is is generous from the 
Irish government, but it doesn't facilitate another 33% on top. We need the voluntary uh, effort that each committee makes to run their fixture. And it's part of what makes point to point and what it is as well, notwithstanding the business element of it is so important. So we can't replace those resources overnight. The Hunt Clubs of Ireland, the, 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 the voluntary point to point committees, they're absolutely crucial to what we do. All right, Richard Pugh there, and before him, David Lawler. Jane Mangan's been listening into that. I mean, Jane, I think we've pretty much covered it, but yeah, Richard Pugh is still concerned enough that this could dribble on into the meat of the season, and a lot of fixtures could could yet be lost, and that will put a lot of people with a lot of stock staring down the barrel of some quite nasty financial implications for sure there's only a certain window in the season really for these horses and i know the cork waterford circuit can accommodate many of them up until may the end of their season here but ultimately you're ground reliant you need to run in this winter spring for safe ground because that's when horses um obviously are are safest running on that surface but Richard's right. Until this is crossed the line, on this, until the dotted line is signed, you can't really be completely confident, completely comfortable. But listening to Mr. Lawler, I was encouraged. Because coming into Christmas, I wasn't sure what the landscape of 2022 would look like. As a person from Cork, obviously, I'm happy that Ballandenisk is in two days' time and drum a hand today but you can't you cannot expect a committee who are volunteering to stand at fences in a rainy day like today in the middle of a field on their day off to stand there for 14 races if you consider that the four-year-old maiden today could go three ways the four-year-old mares could go two ways all of a sudden you have five races in the space of two and the card is already exploding ground deteriorates as the day goes on and it's just not um sensible to have so many races run on one card we actually host our own point to point here in february in tallow and i I just know from experience volunteers cannot be expected to do all that work so i hope the ihrb and hri they prioritize this uh it obviously needs to be given due process the fund needs to be considered and to make sure everything is above board lest we not forget that hri have actually increased their funding to point points for the 2022 year i think up to seven and a half grand per fixture so all that is a big help there is no where nobody's under any illusions as to how integral point pointing is to our industry and it's glad to, i'm glad to hear that this is um, after being prioritised so far and making progress so far. But we are not crossed the line yet. And until we are, we just cannot rest on our laurels. In other news, Jane, Charlie McConnellogue is Ireland's Minister for Agriculture. Alan Sweetman in the Racing Post today reports that he's fired up a warning shot across the bows of Irish racing. Uh, is this um, grandstanding gesture politics or has he got a point? Of course, he's a point. 2021 was a turbulent year outside of the racetrack and Charlie found himself towards the fore of a lot of it. And I suppose no more so than at the Oireachtas hearing throughout the summer. But I listened to his speech at the HRI Awards. It didn't come as any surprise to me. And to be honest, Minister McClanagh, nobody in racing wants a repeat of what happened in 2021. It felt like we were putting out fires every time we had one solved. There was another one igniting. And uh, I hope going to 2022, we can leave the horses on the track and their performances be the centrepiece because Irish racing had a great year in 2021 and it was overshadowed by some dark clouds. And I hope that isn't the case in 2022. And we can learn from these mistakes because by God, we need to.
All right, Jane, you've been at Leopardstown enjoying all the racing over the Christmas period, some wonderful racing as well. Uh, Sharjah recorded a, a notable feat yesterday by emulating Isterbrack and Hurricane Fly in winning four editions of what is now called the Matheson Hurdle, a grade one in the hands of uh, Patrick Mullins. Was the fact that Sharjah was winning his fourth uh, edition of this race the most interesting thing about it? Probably not, Nick. Look, it's worth noting that Hurricane Fly and Isterbrack, they won four, but they did not win them in consecutive years. So, so Sharjah actually created history in doing the four on the bounce. But I suppose watching the race tactically, it was fascinating. It was a little bit like watching an Irish champion stakes and how down the back straight, Gordon Elliott's horses, what looked like to be pacemakers, Petit Mouchoir and Felix Deji, how they manoeuvred to leave Zanny here through and... Actually, Echoes and Rain got through as well, but I just noticed that Charger maybe ran into the back of the grey horse, leaving the back straight, lost a little bit of momentum, found himself at the second last, a couple of lengths behind maybe where Patrick wanted him to be, but he never really panicked. And when they were manoeuvring around the final hurdle, which was omitted due to the sun, Jack Kennedy, instead of manoeuvring straight back to the inside rail on Zanna here, he kept Patrick Mullins out on the old ground, knowing the Sharjah needs good ground. And that was just tactically fascinating from him. Look, it didn't pay off in the end, but it nearly all those ingredients to a tactically run race nearly did result in Sharjah getting beaten. And it was a very good ride from Patrick. He never panicked. He knew what was happening. He was very aware. But you have to tip your hat to Team Elliot. He nearly pulled it off with Zanna here. And look, going forward, Zanna here from the Morgiana to the Matheson. He's a four-rising five-year-old. He is improving. He needs a strong pace to run off of. He got that. He was narrowly denied. He battled really well. And I think Zanna here actually has thrown his hat into the champion hurdle ring as a dark horse. If he keeps improving, Charge is a very good yardstick. He might not just be a million miles away from the Philly come March. Um, Jack Kennedy won the other grade one at Leopardstown on Fury Road for Gordon Elliott. Looked a completely different horse with Kennedy back aboard. He's gifted. He's gifted. I actually have uh, compared him to Paul Carberry in the way he's such a natural talent. And his uh, mannerisms and his mentality isn't dissimilar to Carberry either because nothing faces him whatsoever. He, like Paul Townend, coming into a fence or a hurdle when a horse is keen or lacklustre, their body movements are very minimal. As a viewer, you can rarely tell when they're making a move with their body, when they're squeezing, when they're pulling. It's it's just so it's so fluid, and he is a joy to watch. We saw that on Mighty Potter when things went a fraction wrong. He still got the horse across the line. He obviously has had his issues, but he keeps bouncing back. Despite all those falls, despite all the pain he takes, it doesn't seem to matter. Every time he comes back, it's like he's never been away. And I must say that about Davy Russell as well. 42 years of age, he's had woeful injuries. He was 11 months off and he comes back on Galvin and he rides down to that last fence as if it's not there. That kind of mentality cannot be taken for granted because not every jockey can do it. Pain matters. Pain gets into your head. But for those guys, Gordon Elliott's a very lucky man to have them. Well, I was at Newbury yesterday watching Paul Nichols win another Chalo Hurdle, a grade one race for novices with stage star, won by a wide margin, much as stable companion Brave Man's Game had last year. And interestingly, rather as after Brave Man's Game had won the Corto Star on Boxing Day the other day, Nichols was rather lukewarm about the idea of going to Cheltenham with stage star. And his quote was, well, there's no point going to Cheltenham to finish fifth, which I... I get what he means. He's obviously been a bit chastened by what happened last year, Jane. But, you know, you might not finish fifth. You might win. 
Absolutely. Stage star might certainly win with that kind of talent that he showed us yesterday. I thought from the second last to the last, he quickened up really well. And from the last home, he maintained it and burnt everything off. It was very, very straightforward watching. Had you back to favourite. Um, look, Paul has often avoided Cheltenham, gone to Aintree and made hay there. The Chalo Hurdle has often been a graveyard for horses going to Cheltenham. Brave Man's game last year, Sign Hill, Champ the year before that, going right back to Denman. They all got beaten over hurdles at Cheltenham after winning the Chalo Hurdle. But if you don't turn up in Cheltenham, you most definitely won't win. If the if Paul feels like he doesn't want to go there because of fearing of being chastised, that's the wrong mentality. Horses are there to run. Cheltenham is the Olympics. If you have horses like Stage Star, you legitimately could win. So I'm disappointed to hear it. And I, I hope he, he comes around. And particularly with Brave Man's game again. After the Cotto Star, there's... Only one point to go with him and he he's looking like a better horse, a much better horse over fences already. There's no reason to suggest he wouldn't go off favourite if he lined up, lined up at Cheltenham. Well, yesterday marked the end of what's been a quite extraordinary training career as uh, Alain Douai Dupre saddled his last runner. Um, agonisingly, narrowly failed to get up at, at Pornichet, but that doesn't do justice to what's been uh, not only a career of... Um, great volume in terms of group and grade one winners, but a, a great pioneering spirit as well with victories in the Melbourne Cup and the first ever Breeders' Cup to add to that slew of European classics. And so many of those victories coming in the silks of His Highness the Aga Khan. We heard from Pat Downs on this show earlier in the week paying tribute to Alain Douai Dupre's career. Uh, I'm pleased to be joined once again by, by Francis Graffard, who will succeed Alain as trainer to His Highness the Aga Khan in France, but uh, perhaps more importantly for this exercise, spent three seasons as assistant to him and is uniquely placed to tell me exactly what made him such a great trainer. Francis, thanks for giving up your time uh, once again. I mean, what was it that set Alain de Wai Dupre apart? Uh, hello, everybody. Um, Alain was an amazing horse man, as uh, everybody knows. Uh, he gave me the chance to become his assistant for three seasons after my... Uh, my time in England, and um, we had around 80 horses in training. Uh, I was not with the Aga Khan side, but with his private side, a public stable. And uh, what was amazing is um, obviously on the on the horses uh, side, I would train uh, individually, but also uh, his communication. And he's a, whole, he's a man who shared all his thoughts with me, and uh, really I was part of. Uh, of his uh, thinking how to train each individual. So that was great. So he, he really took you under his wing because a lot of people go to these big trainers and they say, well, I don't really know how I learned what I learned, but I just kind of took it in by watching it. It strikes me that he had real care for the people that, that he, he, he brought through and he wanted you to do well. Yes, because it, I always said to him I wanted to train and I was going to stay only for three seasons. Two uh, at the start, and I said one more season with him. So he, he was really, um, but he, as I said, he, I was spending a lot of time in the office with him, also uh, working on the gallop, work mornings, and race program, and and all these things. And he liked to to share his thoughts, which is good because a lot of big trainers, uh, a lot of things are in their head, and uh, you can't get into them. <laughs> their head, and I'm probably. Like that now, I don't. I keep a lot of for myself. So I, 
uh, with him it was different and uh, I was lucky to, to be assistant at this uh, stable because uh, I learned a lot of my job now. Uh, when you were with uh, Alain, yeah, he, he was enjoying a, another another pretty golden spell. I mean, can you think of examples of uh, of training specific horses that you thought I, I can see how he's done that? I mean, that's that's just above and beyond what most trainers would have done in that situation. Well, we have several uh, cases. Like Reliable Man was um, a very late maturing, three years old. And um, he came saying, in, and we won, uh, like, I think, a uh, maiden in, uh, in Saint-Cloud nicely, and then a condition race at, um, at uh, Chantilly, I think it was. And, uh, and he went straight to the Jockey Club, and he won the Jockey Club, obviously. But um, after the first, the first uh, win, he knew he was going to go to the Jockey Club, and uh, I, all the road leading us to that place, with schooling the horse at Chantilly, Little thing like that was very impressive. Obviously, uh, American to get ready for the Melbourne Cup was great also because he was so attached to details on each individual. And, uh, uh, and because he's a horse who came from America, American, and he was running over shorter distance and um, just uh, nice and, and uh, gently bring it back to the top. And obviously, uh, the highlights of the Melbourne Cup. But it's what I remember is a uh, Philicol Regan. He, when she worked first time out on the on the gallop uh, on the race course side, he came back. He was three years old. He came back and he saw Rupon winning Philly, and that was his uh, first piece of work. And I'm like, oh, you you sure that's the good news? And then uh, three months later, she was winning a Group One. So it was uh, yeah, he was very impressive. He asks the horses when to do more when they are able to. He's patient that way. Uh, for him, there's just the help of the horse, and uh, and the horse tells him when he's ready to to increase the work. And it's not hard on the horses, but when the horse is fit and well, he's hard on them, like every trainer, you know. But um, it doesn't put the horses into a system. He adapts himself to the horse and what they need. That's the main, um, I think that's, that's what made the difference. And even if he had a lot of horses in training, he was still keeping this... Uh, uh, individual program for each horse, and and for you, I know I, it's a it's a, a huge honour to take over at the the Aga Khan's stable. But um, does it give you does it give you great reassurance that that you've had a man like Alain there as your predecessor, or does it just make the pressure a little greater? <laughs> Obviously, I have uh, pressure because his uh, career has been amazing uh, with his uh, his finest colours, uh, and. Um, he knows the family very well, which I don't, uh, and it would probably take me a bit of time and experience to know his families. But, uh, but uh, yeah, he will come in the morning uh, because I, I will ask him to come and for, <laughs> so, to have the pleasure to have with him beside me sometimes, and I'm sure he would be happy to do so. Also, so uh, it would be great. And uh, obviously, if I can share any uh, thoughts, that would be uh, important for me too. It's a, it's a huge honor for me to take over. Uh, after him, uh, and I hope I will be able to uh, to uh, get into his shoes. A trainer, Francis Graffard, there on the career of Alain Duroy Dupre, which concluded yesterday after winning just about every big race the thoroughbred world has to offer. Well, during the last uh, 20 months or so, we've been trying on this podcast just to take stock of how events around the globe have been affecting each different racing nation. 
Um, I'm very pleased for the first time to be joined uh, from India by Tegbig Bra, who's a, a prominent uh, breeder in India uh, from his Dashmesh stud farm. Uh, Tegbir, just just talk to me about where where you're at at the moment in terms of uh, horse racing and the effects of the pandemic. Things have sort of crawled back to normal. Uh, racing is happening in pretty much every uh, racing center again, and uh, we, you know, I mean, in the sense things are were coming back to normal, but with this new variant coming out, uh, the first place that's uh, gone down in a sense is uh, Delhi. It's it's one of our smaller racecourses. It's not a big deal as far as the whole industry goes, but uh, the way things are. It kind of snowballs and it's like dominoes one after the other. So Delhi has uh, cancelled all their off-course uh, betting and the live racing for now uh, until further notice. But racing is going on. In fact, right now I'm seeing Bangalore racing on uh, uh, online. So Bangalore racing is on, Bombay is on, Hyderabad's on, Calcutta's on. Uh, I think the clubs have been quite sensible about the fact that they got everybody double vaccinated and made it kind of compulsory. And... Uh, uh, so far, things are normal. Uh, it has not been that we've lost uh, two of uh, for two years in a row. The Bangalore Derby hasn't been run, which is pretty much one of the biggest races in the country in the summers. And uh, now, uh, you know, I mean, we are hoping things. There's a little bit of uncertainty, but uh, we are just hoping things stay as they are, and you know, it doesn't get any worse than this. I mean, I suppose the the question is, how resilient is the is the industry as a whole in India? Does it have the the resilience and the willpower to to deal with a few more a few more setbacks? I think so. We've got a couple of clubs which uh, which have been quite well run, so they've got quite a bit of money put away uh, over a period of time, cash reserves. Uh, Bombay, which is one of our main centres, unfortunately, is not one of those. Uh, one good thing that happened as a result of uh, the COVID pandemic is that uh, the government was kind enough to allow us online betting, which between you and me is a huge, huge thing for a country like India because we are very conservative. Even though we have a massive illegal betting market online, uh, the government you know, chooses to have this attitude that it doesn't exist, whereas it does. Like Cricket betting is a good case in point. Uh, so that was big. Only problem that we are facing is that uh, on our face value of our bets, 28% is the government's tax takeout. That's hit hit us very, very badly. And all that's done is basically uh, take a lot of our, what was legal betting and the clubs that were doing well with it. We had a couple of clubs which were doing quite well with the totalizators and things like that. Uh, those guys have taken a massive hit and you know the turnover has come down a lot and that's basically brought down stake money quite a bit as well. Uh, what we have had happen though is that slowly over a period of time there's been a bit of a settling in the business where the bottom has kind of fallen out in a sense and now uh, there's there seems to be at least at the mid to higher levels a massive demand for horses. We've had two uh, private auction sales uh, this year uh, at the Punawara stud farm and four of us uh, stud farms in the north of India that's Usha stud ourselves, uh, Mukteshwar Stad and Sona Stad, the four of us got together and put up an auction where we offered about 50 horses for the sale and it was quite good. We had about a 75% clearance rate. The Poonawalas had a private auction. They had a 100% clearance rate. Um, now we are going on to go, uh, we're going to have an auction in the middle of January in uh, Chennai, which uh, again, there'll be about 50 or 60 horses that turn up. 
selling horses in india is a little bit different most people come to your farms and see the horses and buy them and it's a very personal sort of a thing it's not like anyone can just land up and you know buy a horse it's 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 quite regulated it's a bit different from the rest of the world it's i wouldn't say it's a very fair market in a sense and take tell me what's the interest in india for racing from abroad i mean do, do is there is there significant interest in in what we're doing here or in the united states or australia or yeah anywhere else in europe yeah, there's, there's a lot i mean i'm i myself i'm a recent geek uh, so that's 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 a different thing but uh, recently that was one of the good things that the clubs uh, did they tied up with the uh, whoever the broadcaster over there is and uh, they're taking betting on uh, the very, uh, one track a day or two tracks a day from uh, England, uh, they're doing a bit of Australian, I think, Malaysian racing also. Uh, Hyderabad Race Club has been very proactive in this and Calcutta as well. So they take online betting on the product over there and they give up, I think, a 3% or 4% uh, cut to the broadcaster against their turnovers. So that, I think, has been quite a good thing because at least we've got uh, betting going on on racing on a daily basis now rather than only when racing is on live. Ah, and another big thing that has been agreed in principle and they have to work out the modalities of it is that we're going to have a nationalized tote i mean a, a nation i mean a nationwide tote so like you know a single pool so i think that will make a big big difference because it means people get paid out better dividends and things like that thanks to Tegbeer and francis and to richard and david at the beginning of the show jane is still with me and jane has a tip for you Yes, Tim. Uh, Nick, I'm going to Taunton. I'm going to the 225. Game on for glory. Read by Nina Carvey. Everybody will know Nina from being a maestro in bumpers. She's turning out to be a pretty good pin hooker and breeder as well. For Lucy Wadham and Bryony Frost, I'm hoping game on for glory can land the 225 at Taunton. Who's Tim? I don't know, Nick. I don't know. Do you want me to go again? <laughs> Jane, thanks so much. Thank you very much for listening. That was Thursday, December the 30th. We'll see you again tomorrow. Bye bye. <laughs> uh, you going to leave that in, you are? I might do, yeah. You've been listening to Nick Luck Daily, brought to you in association with Fitzdares, the Racehorse Owners Association, and Thoroughbred Racing Commentary.